Well, good afternoon, City Bible Church. It's really great to be here on uh, the week after the retreat. I think it was um, just a fantastic weekend for those of us that were there. I think almost the entire church was there as so we grow in the ways of the Lord, fellowship with one another. The Lord really blessed that. And so um, I think we want to enter this time kind of uh, continuing on with the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are going to continue on with our series in the book of Romans next week. We had stopped this a couple of months ago uh, during the Christmas holidays. We did a series on the family, and we're going to continue back to our series on Romans next week where we left off in Romans chapter 6. For today, we're going to look at a different topic, which is the Eucharist or the communion. And... For many of us, we have, uh, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have received communion. We've received the Eucharist uh, many times before in our Christian walk at our churches. But I wonder if we've ever heard an entire message on that. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to be receiving communion at the end of this service. This is very important because the observance of, of, of communion, of the Eucharist, is something that you are going to be doing, in fact, you are commanded by the Lord to do for the rest of your life until he returns. And so it is very important that we understand what it signifies. We understand the work of God through it. We understand um, our responsibility to obey, to observe it. And so by the end of this message, uh, this message will seem like one part sermon, but it will seem like one part lecture. And the reason for that is because we're going to go into some detail that will feel a little bit like preaching at times, a little bit more like um, some very intricate information. But I think it's necessary because at the end of this message, you will, uh, you will emerge with a greater appreciation for the meaning of the Eucharist, a greater appreciation for the meaning of communion. By the end of this message, you will have a grasp on some of the key points of theology that were debated in church history uh, hundreds of years ago that has implications for how we look at communion today. By the end of this message, you will have um, a deeper and greater understanding of how the Holy Spirit is at work when we approach the communion table. And so that's where we're going today. Uh, we're going to go through a lot of slides, and I think uh, the Lord will really bless our time, and we'll conclude by receiving communion together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll go right into it. Father, as we have gathered here today to worship you, to um, learn from your teaching, to fellowship with one another, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, as we have gathered to... Um, to think about how we can reach the world around us, whether in Japan or locally, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, as we have gathered to worship you and sacrifice uh, to you through our song and our giving of offering. We also gather here today to observe the death of your Son, to look forward to the return of your Son, to examine our lives, our sin our need for Christ. And so, Lord, would you bless our time by renewing it with a deeper, greater understanding of what is happening when we approach 
the Eucharist and, the, and, and have communion with you at the table. And we pray you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go into a basic definition of what is happening when we go to uh, the Eucharist or communion. A basic definition is the Eucharist or communion is the sacrament. Sacrament simply means um, the ritual. It means something that you remember. That's what the sacrament is. And in the Protestant church, we have been given two primary sacraments to practice, to observe um, as a ritual. One is Christian baptism upon uh, faith in Jesus Christ. You do that once upon belief. And the second is an ongoing sacrament, which is the Eucharist or communion. And you do that um, as often as your church uh, decides to do it. There's really no uh, directive on how many times you do it, but we are to do it. It is the sacrament of, number one, how we remember the death of Christ. Number two, it is something how we experience the grace or experience the work of the Holy Spirit when we receive the Eucharist or communion. And number three, it is our act of looking forward to the return of Christ. Communion is not simply something that we look backwards in time and that Christ died on the cross for our sins as the perfect Lamb of God, taking the wrath and judgment of God upon himself so that we could have peace with God uh, through faith and not be part of Satan's kingdom in hell, but in heaven, in God's kingdom. It's not just looking back to how Christ, through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, made that possible. But communion is also something we look forward in. As many times as we participate in it, we observe it, we do this until the return of Christ. So we're always looking forward as well until Christ returns. This is the essence of what is happening, a uh, definition of the Eucharist and communion. Let's take a look at the big picture. We're going to show you some pictures. I just kind of put this together to make it simple. Um, and we're going to be looking at some scriptures here. Let's go to the first one. All right, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 and 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 20 and 21. I'm going to ask you to follow along with this. We're going to be looking at a bunch of scriptures. I don't have it on the screen. So um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 and 21. Now, there's a lot that's happening at Corinth. As you guys know, um, uh, most theologians believe that 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the Gospels happened before what happened at Corinth, but uh, the epistle to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, was actually written before uh, the Gospels. As you know, Paul went there and uh, he ministered for, there for several years in Corinth. Lorraine and I had an opportunity to visit there, and um, it, it was a very pagan uh church or uh, area full of Gentiles. Um, it was a port city, so you'd have people from all over the area kind of come in. There was prostitutes there. It was just a lot of drunken revelry. And out of that, there's a church that's born that comes to know Christ. Now, Paul's writing several letters to the Corinthian church. This is his first. And as you would imagine, with a uh, kind of first-generation Christians, there's a lot of problems at this church. There's divisions, there's people who are saying, oh, I follow Peter, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Jesus Christ, etc. 
There's people who are suing each other. There's rampant sexual immorality. And uh, their worship gatherings were chaotic and on and on and on. So um, in the context of that, Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. Those four chapters. In those four chapters, he's talking about the liberty, the freedom that Christians have uh, when they come to know Christ. The freedom that they have to move away from their old life into new life in Christ. Now, in these verses, he's going to highlight something that he calls the table of demons and the Lord's table. He's going to contrast these two things. And the point of what he's about to say is when you were a, a unbeliever, you were part of this pagan system of idolatry. Okay, You were doing these rituals, sacrificing animals, or, or at least uh, being part of that process. And you were actually interacting with the table of demons. It's the demonic. But now that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are now part of the Lord's table. It's as transferred over to his kingdom. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 and 21, he says, Paul says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you, this is, he's talking about the Corinthian church, you, to participate with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Okay, so some of the Corinthian church's uh, believers might have been confused. They might have been like, well, uh, you know, Monday through Friday, I'll participate in these pagan rituals as a Christian. And Sunday, I'll participate in the gathering of the church. I'll kind of cover both bases. Paul's saying it doesn't work that way. Okay, you got to choose. You're either part of participating in the worldview of demons and the religion of demons, or you're participating in the table of the Lord, which is the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so out of that, let's go on to the next, um, the Christian church would gather together in this thing that they would call the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper uh, in the early days was, uh, you've heard this phrase, a love feast. It was a time when the church would gather, uh, like on a Sunday, and it would go on for several hours. It would be, they would gather together, they would bring food, they would eat together, they would drink together. Um, what is that, fish? Is that bread? Is that vegetables? And if you sort of think about um, our monthly gathering where we eat dinner together here and we're just kind of fellowshipping and people bring food, in a loose way, it's kind of like that. That was the Lord's Supper, where they would gather together. But obviously, there was problems at Corinth. And we know from 1 Corinthians that when the Corinthian church would come together, um, there would be rich Christians, poor Christians. There would be mature Christians, weak Christians. And so, when they would have these, this Lord's Supper, what was happening? Uh, the people who had the power, had the money and all this, and were, who were hungry, they'd show up and they'd just like eat all the food. And then they would leave like the crumbs for the poor Christians. And, and so there's this inequality that was happening. And there's people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, you know, drinking all this wine. And they think it's this big pagan party almost. And so Paul's actually rebuking them. And he's saying, look, when you gather together as a church in the Lord's Supper, you are to, um, you're to treat each other equally. You're to treat each other as brother and sister in Christ. You're not to get drunk. Okay, you're to honor the Lord. This is a fellowship of believers as you eat Together. Now, as part of the Lord's Supper, there was this other kind of ending part of it that was a sacrament of the Eucharist or communion, basically the same thing. And at a certain point, they would observe the Lord's death and they would have a certain cup. 
they would have some um, like like unleavened bread or and some breaking of some bread, and that would be a direct focus on the death of Christ as part of the larger Lord's Supper, would be Eucharist and communion. Now, uh, this was the issue at Corinth, and so there's problems here, right? And so uh, we know from church history that sometime in the early church period, the early church actually started to separate the, 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 the wider gathering of eating together and the several hour gathering and then uh, the communion and the Eucharist, and they kind of separated the two. And so they would kind of have the Eucharist and communion as a special time in the worship service. And so that's kind of the relationship here. We were part of the table of demons as unbelievers, as we worship the demonic uh, realm and demonic belief systems informed our worldview. We came to Christ. We were metaphorically part of the Lord's table now. And in fact, when you look throughout the Gospels, it talks about how, like, like for example, in Luke 14, you know, when we go to heaven and, and there's this banquet table that's set before us, you know, the marriage feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. Um, this is the Lord's table that we are invited to, like this banqueting table. And, and so they would celebrate the Lord's Supper and, and sacrament and the Eucharist in the early church. Let's move on. Let's look at some scriptures. I want to take you to four key scriptures right now that are going to take us through metaphor, take us through the uh, transition from Passover to Eucharist and communion, uh, take us kind of the spiritual role of sanctification, discipline in communion, and, um, and et cetera, a few, few other things. So let's go to the first. Jesus is the bread of life. Let's go to John chapter 6, verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Just one verse. Now, as you know, in John 6, this is, a, this is a chapter when earlier on, Jesus fed the 5,000 men. And it says 5,000 men, but it's not counting the women and the children. So maybe it's 15,000, 20,000 altogether, but they only counted the men on this. Uh, a young man, they, the disciples bring uh, uh, his lunch, five um, loaves, two fish. Jesus blesses it, uses it to feed the thousands of people. They collect all these extra bread baskets. After that, now Jesus get, gets um, goes away from the crowd, gets in a boat. In earlier on in this passage, and it says, "In the next day, they find Jesus." We're on around verse twenty-five or so, chapter six, and they come to Jesus and say, "How'd you get to this other side? You know, we didn't see you get to this other side." And um, and he doesn't answer that directly. And I'm just kind of summarizing verse twenty-six on. And he says, "You know what? You're you're coming to me." Not because you want to know that. What you're coming to me, Jesus is essentially saying, is because you want me to do more miracles. You want me to uh, do some more feeding of the 5,000. But you do not realize that um, what you truly need is not to be fed. Your body needs to be fed, but you need to be fed spiritually. You do not realize that you are spiritually hungry. You're spiritually famished. You do not realize that you're spiritually um in need of the living water. And so he says that uh, you are, this is the will work to do, uh, to believe in the one who he has sent, verse 29. Uh, verse 32 and following, um, I am, the Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. And they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying, he's not, he didn't like magically transform himself into a piece of bread. He didn't magically transform himself into like a fountain of waters. You know, they're looking at the physical Jesus and he's saying, I, Jesus, am the bread of life. I am the one that you, if you come to me, if you believe in me, you will never thirst. So he's speaking in metaphor. And so the significance of this is that Jesus himself connects himself in metaphor to the bread, to the drink. And that would be connected to his body on the cross. It would be connected to his shed blood on the cross. So he is, um, he is using this metaphor to point to himself and to his, uh, his work on the cross as well. Let's go to a second scripture here. The Passover that turns into the Eucharist, that turns into communion. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through 20. Go ahead and turn there with me. Luke 22, verse 14 through 20. Now, you can also find this Passover account uh, in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John chapter 13, verse 17. So what is happening here? Uh, this is the institution of, of communion of, at the Lord's Supper. It's the institution of the Eucharist. And this is the night before Jesus is uh, sent to the cross. After this time in the upper room, he's going to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to get betrayed by Judas to the Roman soldiers and all that, the, the trial at night, and he's going to get crucified the next day. So this is really his last Passover. And this is the, the time when all of these things are happening, right? This is in John 13 through 17. Uh, he, he washes the disciples' feet. This is happening in, in the upper room. He is um, instituting the Passover. Uh, he sends Judas out, to, and he, Judas is going to betray him. He uh, talks about the coming Holy Spirit. He prays the high priestly prayer in John 17. So all these things are happening. And they are uh, partaking of the Passover. In verse 14, when the hour had come, uh, that's not the hour of, of the day, by the way. When it says the hour had come in verse 14, that means the hour for him to institute the, uh, the Eucharist at, at the Passover. It was the time, the appointed time. He reclined at table. So in a Passover setting, uh, they, they would sit kind of low, like the host would sit at the front of the table kind of reclining on it, and the guests would be around the table, um, probably uh, kind of reclining as well, but their feet would be not inside the table, but outside the table, because feet in those days, as you can imagine, were very dirty, and so they would keep it away from the food. So this, this uh, what is it, Da Vinci painting where they're all sitting up, you know, it's all pyramid proper, probably didn't look like that. And he says in verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Because Jesus knew it would be his last Passover. For I tell you, verse 16, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant 
in my blood. So they're at the Passover. Now, what would be a traditional Passover meal? Passover meal would take several hours. There'd be several set steps to a Passover meal. The Passover meal would typically be run by the host of the family, maybe the father or so, the father of the house. And he would begin with a prayer of thanks. The night, the Passover, which they would celebrate once a year. Now, let me back up. What was the Passover? As you remember, the Jews were uh, commanded to observe the Passover, which represented the time when uh, they were in 400 years of bondage in Egypt. This is talked about in the book of Exodus. And um, all these plagues happened. Pharaoh is not persuaded. The final uh, plague is is this um, this angel of death that's going to come upon them. And uh, the Hebrews were told to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on, on the doorway and, and all around there, and then the angel would pass over the house, and he would kill like the firstborn of any house that didn't have the blood on the door. And so it was after that Pharaoh let them go, they into the Exodus, and they were freed from that. So the Jews were commanded to observe this once every year. And so in the Passover gathering, the, the uh, father or the host would begin with prayer of thanks. Secondly, there would be four cups that were served during the Passover. There would be a first cup. It's called the cup of blessing, and that would be passed around. They would you know, drink from it, or I don't know if they poured it on, they have their own drinks, or they all drink from the same cup, I don't know, but they would drink. Um, and after that, they would wash their hands which would symbolize a washing of sins, symbolically. Probably it was within that context of them washing their hands with the towel symbolically to represent the cleansing of sin that uh, John 13 happens where Jesus takes the, the, the towel and starts to wash the disciples' feet. After that, they would eat some bread with bitter herbs, and and they would kind of scoop it into this, I don't know, mixture of fruit and nuts. And the bitter herbs would symbolize the bitterness of all of the years of uh, centuries of slavery that God's people experienced when they were under Pharaoh's hand. So they eat the bread, the bitter herbs, fruit and nuts. After that, they would sing what's called the Hallel Psalms, the Hallel Psalms, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. But at this point, they would probably sing Psalms uh, 113 and 114. And they would just literally sing it word by word in those verses, the entire psalm. After that, there would be a second cup they would drink from of wine. After that, the father or the host would explain the meaning of Passover. After that, they would then eat a meal of roasted Passover lamb with unleavened bread. They would then drink a third cup. They would then drink, uh, sing some more Hallel Psalms of 115 to 118, and then drink a fourth cup. And that would take several hours in the Passover. Now, what is interesting about this passage in Luke chapter 22 is Jesus is interrupting the Passover. And he's probably doing this um, maybe around the third cup towards the end. And in the institution of the Lord's Supper, of this Eucharist and communion during the Lord's Supper, this, this Passover meal, he is changing the spiritual reality of the Passover. He is essentially saying, from this point forward, there is to be no more Passover. It is now the Lord's Supper. It is the Eucharist. It is communion for those of us who believe. It is literally from that point forward that any future observance of the Passover done at any time in the future is invalid, according to the gospel. And so he is changing this, the the entire meaning of this. It's tremendously significant. 
And he says in this, in this, uh, in this passage, um, verse 16, I'm not going to eat of this Passover again until uh, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so what is he talking about here? He's saying this is going to be, it was started as Passover, it's now communion, Eucharist, and I'm not going to do this again with you until the coming of the kingdom. Well, what does he mean? What kingdom? That is the future millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign that is talked about in Revelation chapter 20. He is saying that uh, at this point, I'm not going to be dining with you until what would happen. He dies on the cross. He rises again. Uh, the church age happens, which we are in right now. And there will come a time when the Lord will come and rapture the church. And, and from that point in the book of Revelation, um, chapter 20, there's going to be a thousand-year reign when Christ and all of God's people reign here on earth. That is what he's talking about. I am not going to drink and eat again with you until I come back for the church and initiate a thousand-year reign at the end of time. They couldn't have known that, of course. And so, look at some of these commands. He says in verse 19, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And uh, if you look at verse 19, that's very important. We're going to get to that in a moment. This is my body. Do this. It's a command. Do this. And why? To remember me. And all three of those phrases, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me, is going to have an enormous impact on the debates that the church would have in the coming thousands of years. What does he really mean? What is really happening here, which we'll touch on in a few moments. But for that, um, um, let's move on to the third scripture here. Eucharist, communion, seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus, let's go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 30 through 35. Now, this is after his resurrection. He appears to many disciples. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, that in his resurrected state, before he ascended back to the Father, that he appeared before over 500 people. So this whole idea that he only appeared to a few people is bogus. See, Paul wrote, uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians 15. And when he wrote 1 Corinthians 15, it would have been in the early 50s AD. So people who were reading 1 Corinthians in the early 50s AD, many of them would have still been alive when Jesus was resurrected in the early 30s-ish AD. And so when Paul wrote there, 500 people saw him, uh, that had to be true because people would have known and could verify that. And so this is one of the instances where Jesus appears to some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And basically, he comes alongside of them. I'm summarizing most of the chapter. He comes alongside of the disciples, and they're like, oh, you know, we heard Jesus is resurrected. He comes along in his resurrected body and starts talking to them. They don't even recognize that he's Jesus. It says in verse 27 of chapter 24, So therefore, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus starts interpreting through the scriptures 
all the things that the scriptures said about him, the things that scriptures pointed to him. And he's using the scriptures to open the eyes of the disciples who didn't even recognize that they were talking to him. They still kind of don't get it, though. So it says in verse uh, 28 and following, so they came near to a village and they wanted to hear more. Hey, this guy, there's something about him. What is it? Come stay with us. So he stays with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he broke the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Let's stop there. When the Bible says in the New Testament, they broke bread, that's not primarily referring to, oh, they ate lunch together. You know, they, they went out together. They, they broke bread. And we talk about it like that, but actually the, the more accurate meaning when it says they broke bread, like in Acts chapter 2, they listened to the apostles' teaching. You know, they prayed. They met every day in the courts, and they broke bread together. What that's primarily referring to, the breaking of bread, is the Eucharist, communion. And so when he's breaking the bread and he's blessing it, notice that that's really a communion act. That's an act of Eucharist. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized, they recognized him and their eyes were opened after they received the Eucharist, communion. And he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked on the road? And then it says that they went and found the other 11 and gathered them together. Verse 34, and the Lord has risen indeed. He's risen. He appeared to Simon. Verse 35, and then they told what had happened in the road and how they were known to them in the breaking of bread. In the breaking of bread. See, there's a spiritual dynamic that happens when you participate in the Lord's table. For the disciples, their eyes were opened. They didn't even recognize the guy until two things happened. They were taught the word of God and they broke bread. And suddenly, Jesus became, you know, they were aware. There's something dynamically happening when you receive Eucharist and communion. The sacrament of the Eucharist um, basically means, I should have defined this earlier, uh, the sacrament of the Eucharist means thanksgiving. That's what Eucharist means. It's based on many passages. Luke chapter 22, verse 19 is one of them. But Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharista, and that means thanksgiving. So when we say we participate in the Eucharist, that is based upon Jesus saying, you know, this is, um, this is when it says when he took the bread and he gave thanks to the Lord. He gave Eucharista. That's what Eucharist is. It's giving thanks to what the Lord has done on the cross. The word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, breaking of bread and you share in the body of Christ. Uh, we also talk about koinonia, we translate it as the word fellowship. So when you say communion, it's fellowship with, we share in the body of Christ through that. So we give thanks to God through communion, Eucharist, and we share in the life of the body of Christ as fellow, with other fellow believers, communion. Interchangeable terms oftenly, often. And so there's a spiritual dynamic at work in communion, just like in Luke 24. Let's move on to the fourth scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, very familiar passage, we often read it here at the church. <clears throat> the Lord sanctifies and he disciplines through communion. Communion. 
Um, now, as we mentioned before, at the Lord's Supper at Corinth, they were abusing it. People weren't getting fed. People were getting drunk. And so Paul uh, reminds them of the spiritual significance of communion. And he also gives them some warnings. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Again, that command, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. By the way, you guys, just as an aside, this is not an option. It's not a request. It's not a, um, a principle for living. This is a direct command from the mouth of Jesus himself. He says, do this in remembrance of me. The implication of that is this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're not going to a church, you cannot possibly be observing and participating in the Lord's Supper. Some churches do it every week. Some churches do it once a month. John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, wanted to do it every week, but he was told he could only do it once a quarter. Regardless of what that is, if you're not part of a church, you are in direct violation of the command of Jesus. You cannot participate in the Eucharist or communion. You cannot do that at your home. Oh, I'm going to eat a sandwich. I'm going to drink some grape juice. No, it doesn't work that way. Remember, it's the sharing in the body of Christ, communion. It's giving thanks to the Lord in the context of the church. And so that is one of the reasons why you need to be part of a church. Because if you're not, and you're not regularly participating in the Lord's table, in the Lord's Supper, in communion, Eucharist, you're violating this direct command from Jesus. He says, do this in remembrance of me, verse 25, in the same way, he uh, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the co- new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's the past looking, proclaim the Lord's death, the forward until he comes. Verse 27, here's where um, the kind of the sanctifying, disciplining element comes in when you approach the, the Lord's table. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What is Paul saying? He is saying, when you come to the Lord's table, you better examine your life. And you better come to the conclusion before you receive communion that you're sinful. You know, I, I was talking with someone today and they came up to me and said, hey, I, I'm sinful. And my immediate response to them was, well, you're in the right place. Okay? And you're actually at the right service. Okay? You're to come with a sense of, you know what? I am, I'm a saint in Jesus Christ, but my actions, my thoughts, my failure to do the good that God wants me to do, my embrace of evil, uh, show that I'm still sinful, even though I'm a saint. And so I need reconcil- I, I, I need a sense of cleansing and forgiveness. And that comes through 
the, the atoning sacrificial life of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so I come to Jesus during communion, acknowledging, admitting that. And it's more than just saying, I'm sorry, God, okay, until I'm not sorry an hour from now when I'm off to my normal life. What it is, is it's our way of saying, Lord, um, I, I recognize that my life in my flesh is, um, is defiling. And I thank you, Lord, that I am not condemned along with the world. Verse 32 in our passage. I'm not condemned. No condemnation for those in Christ, Romans 8. But I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Will you forgive me, Lord? Will you cleanse me of this defilement? My sin is grieved. My sin has quenched the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy on me. And it says if we do not, the Lord can discipline us. Now, what does that mean? Um, it means that for the Corinthian church, and I think the same is true today, some people got sick and some people died because they took communion in an unworthy manner. And these are believers, okay? So discipline for them did not mean uh, God will strike you down and send you to hell because there's no condemnation like the world. You're a believer. But discipline certainly did mean some of them were actually physically sick. And some of them actually died. And that was a form of discipline. God says, I'll just take you right now to heaven. Okay? It's better, far better, for you to discipline yourself than to wait for the Lord to discipline you. Okay? It's far better for you to exercise self-control than it is for God to just pull the rug out from underneath of you because we cannot or we refuse to. One of the things that communion does it, it puts the fear of God in us, which is very good. And I'll tell you why. It's because I fool myself to believe and I embrace the lie that I have less self-control, less self-discipline than I believe I have been given by God. I, I couldn't help it, God. I'm just uh, a puppet to Satan in the world. Uh, you know, I'll try better next time. And I, I start to get into this thinking. And the truth and the reality is, no, no, I do have the ability to control my anger. I do have the ability to be more disciplined in the things of the Lord. And the only thing that's stopping me is I just choose not to. And I fool myself to believe that I can't. And so part of what communion does is it gives you the motivation to say, if I do not tap in to the self-discipline and self-control that the Holy Spirit has already given me, that I'm unwilling to acknowledge in my Christian character, then I risk God just disciplining me himself in his own way. It's better for you and I to do that ourselves than to wait for God to do it. And that's very good. It's very good. That's a sanctifying work that happens in communion. It's a disciplining work that happens in communion. Now, if you examine yourself, come to Christ in, in a spirit of contrition, repentance, committing yourself to the ways of God, then you know you got nothing to worry about. You got nothing to worry about with that. That's essentially what Paul's saying here. So there is something spiritual going on here, is there not? All right. This is not just a remember. This is clearly something spiritual that's happening. And so, what does this mean for us? And I'm just gonna, you know, just gonna give you just a couple of quick points in terms of ch uh, church history, and then we'll summarize and we'll receive communion. Um, a jet tour for church history. I'm just let's go on to the next one. In, in the 1500s, um, okay, the the Roman Catholic Church 
up until the time of the Reformation in the 1500s in Europe, had a stranglehold in terms of authority and religion over people. And basically, the Roman Catholic Church um, did that in a number of ways, one of which is the, the Bible was essentially uh, read in Latin. Most of the people couldn't even understand Latin. They didn't even understand what was happening. And so the Catholic Church had full authority over the Word of God. There's no Gutenberg press at that point. There's no, you know, so it was just, you want the Word of God, you've got to come to the church. You can't even own your own Bible, and if you, if you could, you couldn't even read it. And the second area of authority the Catholic Church had was over the Eucharist. And what they said, the Roman Catholic Church said, is, you know what? Um, the Eucharist, the, the, the bread, the juice, we're going to call that, in the act of us praying over it as the church, we're going to say that that actually becomes the actual body and the actual blood of Christ. Follow me on this, you guys. It becomes that. It's, it's a phrase called transubstantiation. Not important you know that phrase. And so the authority that the Roman Catholic Church had was to basically say this. If you want the grace of God in your life, you must come to the Mass. You must hear the Bible talk to you in a way you don't understand. And you've you got to receive communion because that's the way you're going to receive the grace of Christ. By us giving it to you. You can't do it on your own. Okay? And because that is, Christ is actually becomes elements in the service. Well, the reformers, Martin Luther, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, others, um, Andreas Karlstadt, you know, a, a bunch of others said, no, 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 that is totally false. Pope Leo X was uh, the pope at that time, and they, the reformers said, no, that is false. That's not what Christ was talking about. That's not what's going to help the people. That's not what the church is supposed to be, and that's not what the Bible says. And so they broke away, and that was part of the Protestant Reformation. Let's go on to the next. Now, within the Protestant Reformation, there was this other divide. Okay, and there's different people on different sides, but you can summarize it by this. Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. And basically what happened was there was this huge disagreement, and in 1529, in a city called uh, Marburg in Germany, there's a, there's a convocation that was brought together called the uh, Colloquy of Marburg, and that was brought together by this, you know, there was political reasons, there was religious re reasons for that. And basically what happened at this is the goal was to unite Protestantism. And they brought Luther, they brought Zwingli, who had these two different views on, on the Eucharist and communion. And they looked at 15 different theological points on just different, you know, salvation, the Bible. There was agreement on 14 and a half of the 15 points between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. The half a point that they disagreed with on what was the meaning of communion. They disagreed. It split Protestantism. And Luther actually called Zwingli an unbeliever for taking a different view. So what was Luther's view? Luther's view, Zwingli and, and Luther were in agreement. They said, look, the Roman Catholic Church, their whole view of what Christ is, he actually becomes the, the juice and, and, and the bread. No, that's false. But then when they came together, Luther said, well, no, it's not. Luther said, look, um, you know, it does actually become Christ, but it's actually still bread and juice at the same time. So Luther kind of had almost a Roman Catholic view, but he said, no, it's still the bread, it's still the juice, but Christ is still within it. Zwingli said, no, that's false. It's simply a symbolic thing. When we receive communion, we just remember Christ is not there. And there's this massive disagreement, split the church, and it has implications for how we see communion today. Now fast forward, one more thing. And then comes a guy named John Calvin. The, uh, 
And um, John Calvin was another titan of, of the Protestant Reformation. And Calvin kind of had this middle view. And this is my view. This is, I think, the correct view. This is the view of our church. And Calvin basically said this. Luther, you're correct. There is something spiritual happening in communion, but you are incorrect that the elements, that Christ is actually in the elements. But there is something spiritual, so you're correct in that point. And then Calvin basically said to Zwingli, Zwingli, you're correct, because it is a remembrance and it is a ritual, but you're incorrect because there is something spiritual happening. So Calvin solved it with the Holy Spirit. What Calvin said was this. He said, this is a remembrance, this is something that is symbolic, but when we receive communion, the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. So Christ is not in the elements, but and we remember it in the context of the church. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in our life, a grace, giving us grace, doing a work in our hearts. And so it can get a lot more complicated what that means, but that is essentially the conversation. And what the reformers said, it's communion is the sign and the seal of Christ. When we receive communion, it is the sign, it is the symbol of Christ's death, and it is the seal of the grace of the Holy Spirit of Christ in our lives. There's actually a spiritual event happening. And so to summarize all of this, this is what we want you to take away from this time. Number one, all Christians are commanded to observe communion. And we're commanded to do that in the context of the church. Number two, communion is both the sign and the seal of Jesus Christ. It's symbolic, but there's a work of the Holy Spirit to do uh, to bring us to Christ in the act of communion. It's not just a symbolic remembrance. Number three, God sanctifies us and he disciplines us who take it in an unworthy manner. Number four, when we receive communion, it is not just a vertical thing, it is a horizontal thing. We are identifying with the wider body of Christ. So with that, we'll close with this. We're going to observe the Eucharist and the communion during this time. And so um, I want to invite you all who, to come to the communion table right now. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, um, go ahead and approach the communion table, get the elements, and then come back to your seat, and I'll lead you through that. So just go ahead and form a line in the back and go ahead and uh, get the elements now. If you have your communion elements with you, uh, I want you to take a, a few moments, come to the Lord in prayer. Let's do what the Word of God has just taught us. Let's examine ourselves. Let's uh, make our commitments to discipline ourselves so that the Lord doesn't need to discipline us. Do not think that you're too sinful to come to the communion table as long as you are willing to as long as you are a follower of Christ and as long as you're willing to turn that over to Christ. It's an affront to the grace of God to not receive communion, to think that your sin is too great if you are truly a believer. It's a belief that your sin is greater than the grace of God. And so if you are a follower of Christ and you're willing to examine yourself and reach out to Christ during this time, you should be receiving communion. So, Let's take a few moments to examine ourselves. When you're ready, go ahead and receive the bread. 
When you're ready, go ahead and receive the juice, signifying the shed blood of Christ. Amen and amen.